with us this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Um, 2 Samuel is, a, is an Old Testament book, and typically what we're doing here at Redeemer is we're just preaching through um, a book of text, looking at it chapter by chapter. And so we've been in First and Second Samuel now uh, for several months working our way through this. Listen, Second Samuel is some 3,000 years old, right? We're, we're removed from this um, 3,000 years. It's 1,000 years before Jesus. It's a theological history, right? It's, it's telling both um, the history of, of God's people receiving their first king in Saul and then in David and the monarchy, but it's also right, showing God's faithfulness as He is working, leading, and moving among His people. And so it's been a, a violent scene. It's been kind of a tumultuous scene as we've watched um, really Saul flounder, um, not trust the Lord as king, David um, being anointed for a king for a long time while Saul was still king, but has finally ascended um, to the throne. And because it's a, a history, but it's also theological, um, sometimes the events are not in chronological order. They're, they're compiled a little bit. And so we're going to see that this morning as we look at a couple chapters. And so let's, let's um, pick up in chapter 8. Remember, last week in chapter 7, God has made a covenant with David saying, listen, the throne is not going to depart from your lineage. Right? And we know that ultimately that was fulfilled in Jesus. Right? Like that he is right from David's lineage, that he was the one that was going to bring peace and, and blessing and a kingdom that would last forever. And so let's pick up in chapter 8. After this, so after the covenant, right, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. And David also defeated Hadadezer, the, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore the power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobab, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put the garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought him to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. And when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health, to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, and had been often at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so David reigned over all of Israel, 
and David administered justice and equity to all his people. We're going to stop there for just a minute. So listen, chapter 8 can kind of list like a history book, right? Like you, you feel like you're reading history at this point because it's a compilation. David didn't go from one battle to the next to the next. This is kind of a compilation of his life as a general as he's leading the people as king, these victories that he's had. It's important for us to remember that there were some promises that had been made to David by God. If you, if you look in chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, Here's what God says to David. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appointed judge over all my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, right? Meaning his, his lineage. So, so God tells David, listen, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. Um, your enemies are going to be defeated, and I'm going to make your name great. And chapter 8 is basically kind of a compilation of his military victories, which we're seeing his name became great, that people were beginning to know Israel. Right up until this point, Israel, um, their fortunes had not been great because Saul was such a poor king and a poor leader, right? That they were often being attacked, and they were losing um, battles, and now David here as king, their fortunes have changed. And, and just a quick aside, we see the benefit of good leadership, right? Which is still um, the nature of, of our life today. So whether you're in a school setting, in a work setting, in a family setting, in a church setting, um, in any sort of job setting, that good leadership makes a significant difference. And so as David is leading the people of Israel well, God's promises from chapter 7 are coming true. The Philistines who he defeats in verse 1, right? even though they're mentioned continuously throughout the Old Testament, will never be a legitimate threat to Israel again. Like David subdues them. In, in verse 10, we see these people, um, Toy, he comes um, to David once he's heard of all these victories, and he basically is bringing a treaty, right? He asks David about his health to bless him. He's coming recognizing David and Israel as the uh, kind of the superior, stronger party. And so for the first time, Israel's not the, the weaker one, right? They're actually being seen as strong and mighty as they are obtaining land that they've never had before. We see David recognizing that God is the one who's given him victory. That he's dedicating much of the spoil of war back to the Lord. That he's not keeping the gold. He's not keeping the horses. Because in Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17, we're told that a king, right, that God says, listen, your king should not obtain a lot of gold for himself. Should not obtain horses and should not obtain a lot of wives. That, that David is trying to obey the Lord here. In these things. Not to mention that the terrain of, of Jerusalem in this area were not conducive to chariots as it was a rocky kind of mountainous terrain. And we have this verse um, at, towards the end in verse 15. So David reigned over all of Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. What a succinct but powerful verse. Just saying David led well. That he wasn't just winning battles, but that he was bringing justice and peace and equity to the land. Because if you remember, as we started 1 Samuel, 
Remember, this is coming out of the scene of the judges. And in Judges, the, the refrain over and over again was this. The people did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. Right? That David is bringing justice and harmony and peace. In Deuteronomy 32.4, we see this description of God. The rock, meaning God, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. Right? This is who the people are following. This is their God. This is their King. And he now, they now have a King who is not perfect. We've seen David sin. But his trajectory is that he's obeying the Lord. And because of that, he is reflecting the image of God, which is justice and faithfulness. Right? It's equity for all the people. Right? This is just this beautiful, powerful, succinct statement about the way that David is leading and ruling. So listen, we're going to skip chapter 9 for just a moment. And in chapter 10, we're going to look at the first few verses. Um, and, and, and it says this, verse 1, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the prince, princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? And Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told David, he, he sent to meet them, the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Remain at Jericho, Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. And when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of beth Rohab and the Syrians of Zobah. All right, so, so here's what's happening. David hears that a, a, someone he has a treaty with, that he's been loyal to, that has been loyal back to him, has died. And his son's taking place, and so he sends out kindness, right? Emissaries on his behalf, right? To, to, to reestablish this relationship. And yet the advisors of this new king say, mm, I think they're spies. And they, re, they reject the overtures of David, this kindness and this mercy, and they humiliate and shame these men, taking off half their beards, right? Exposing their nakedness by cutting their clothes half off so that right, their lower half is exposed humiliating these men. And so we've just seen in chapter 8 that David is winning victories wherever he goes. And now you have this, this challenge to him and to his leadership. And, and still to this day in the Arab culture, it is an honor and shame culture. Right? You bring shame, then we have to restore honor by removing the shame. And so the Ammonites knew, it says in verse 6, that they had become a stench. They were this offensive thing now to David that there was going to be a battle. And so David, um, he sends his army, and, and what the Ammonites do is they basically hire mercenaries, and they attack the army from two sides. And Joab, David's general, splits the armies, right? And says, we're going to take half and half, and we're going to fight, and if you need help, we'll come to you. If I need help, I'll call and you come help me. And they win resoundingly, right? Like they, they defeat them. And what we're seeing is David's prowess as a leader, right? That he's caring for his men, 
not allowing their shame to be covered. He sends them off so they don't have to return to their families until their beards have grown back, right? Their, their honor has been restored. But then we're seeing the way that he's leading in, in, as both a king, as a judge, as a military leader. But here's what's interesting. is smack between these two stories, right, that are telling just some of the victories, the history of the people of Israel. We're going to look at chapter 9. Because these two kind of are going to crown and, 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 and wrap around this story that we're actually going to focus on this morning. So go back to verse 1 of chapter 9. David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul, the former king, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, Jonathan was Saul's son and a dear friend of David. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And the king David sent him and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mehebesheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. All right, so I want you to imagine for a second, right, this, this grandson of Saul, this son of Jonathan, who knows that, that a new line of king has been brought in, has now been called before the king. You can imagine the fear, the concern is, like, am I going to be wiped out here? And David said to him in verse 7, Do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Behebesheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mehebesheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mehebesheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mehebesheth's servants. So Mehebesheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. Right, so smack dab between these two stories of just battle, victory, military might, we have this story of David saying, listen, I had a covenant with Jonathan. Right, that I would remember his family and his household, that I would deal bountifully with them, we saw that multiple times in 1 Samuel, including chapter 20, verse 42. And if you remember back in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, in verse 4, that there was an accident that when they heard that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, um, Mehebesheth was five. The nurse picked him up. They're fleeing. They're not sure if they're going to be defeated as well, if the enemies are coming to attack them. And he was dropped. And it crippled him in both of his feet. And so that was the first mention of him, and now we see him again in chapter 9, grown up with a son. He's been hiding away, obviously well enough that David wasn't aware that he was even alive. 
And so what I want us to look at in, in this story this morning is this. There's a couple layers going on here. We have this beautiful story of David's kindness to Mehebesheth. So we're just going to go ahead and like spoil the surprise here that we are Mehebesheth. And we're going to see Jesus' kindness to us. Right? That these stories have a depth of layer to them. Listen, as, as Mehebesheth comes, David says to him, listen, it's not because of you, it's because of your father, Jonathan, that I'm doing this. Right? I'm showing you kindness on behalf of the relationship and the friendship and, and the closeness I had with Jonathan. Church, this morning the king has spoken to us. And he has called us into relationship. And he says it's not on behalf of you, but it's on behalf of Jesus. Right? Like God has made us right with Him through the life, the death, and the sacrifice, the resurrection of Jesus. That when we stand someday before the throne of God, we don't beat our chest and say, look at what I've done, Matthew 7. Right? Look at what I've accomplished. We stand there and we look at Jesus and we say, only on His grace, His mercy, and His merit do I stand here before you. And we are received by the King on behalf of the Son of God, Jesus. As Mehebesheth is received on behalf of Jonathan, his father. Listen, as he comes as a crippled man, he's broken. right? If David is there wanting to hurt him, to fight him, to make a scene out of this, right? an example of him, what is he going to do? He can't run. He can't fight. He is completely at the mercy of King David. Church, we are completely at the mercy of God. We come broken before Him, unable to save ourselves, unable to right the wrong in our rebellion against God. We stand before the King at His mercy, knowing that whatever He declares in that moment, there's nothing we can do to stand against it. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Whatever He says goes. And so you can imagine Mehebesheth standing there um, fearful. He maybe not is even standing there. He may be on the ground or being held up by others, but standing there looking, going, whatever you say, what am I going to do? That we stand before God. And we are reminded that in Romans 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Church, that He has taken His enemies of whom we all are or once were and has demonstrated His love for us by going to the cross and dying for us, not on our best day, but on our worst day. Right? It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. But because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we are completely at His mercy. We are broken before Him. We are crippled spiritually. And He receives unmerited grace. Right? His grandfather tried to murder David multiple times. He sought David out so that David had to live in the wilderness. has made David's life completely difficult. And yet he receives grace that was unmerited upon him. And look at his response. Behold, in verse 6, I'm your servant. Then he says in, in verse 8, he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It's just this, like, this humble response. I've got nothing to offer back. Are you kidding me? You're giving me back all that was my father's? All that was my grandfather's? Like you could kill me right now and no one would blink an eye. No one would say a thing. And you are restoring to me 
That's the next thing I want us to know, that He is being restored. And I think often, when we think of God accepting us, of giving us some, granting us salvation, of loving us, that we kind of view it like, hey, He loves me because He's God and He has to, but then He, he tucks me over in the corner because He's a little bit embarrassed of me. So it's like, okay, you're in, but you're in by the skin of your teeth. And, and you're going to be rele- relegated over there, Right? But what, what happens to Mehebesheth here? I'm going to have to say that a lot. Um, he is invited to the table. And he says, not just for a meal, not for a ceremonial thing, not for good PR where they can get a picture, right? And Mehebesheth is there with King David, and then he can be sent over to the corner. He is brought to the table, and David says, and he will eat here for the rest of his life. He is treated like a son with land and money and servants restored to him. He is brought in as family. Church, God brings us in and calls us friends. And not only that, He adopts us in as sons and daughters of the King. That we are not relegated over to the corner. We are brought in and set at the table and said, you belong here. We are made co-heirs with Christ. We are restored with all that we have lost. All of creation, right? We are co-heirs with Christ at the, at the table of the King. The king's words changed Mehebesheth's life here. That as he comes in in fear and in doubt, the king speaks and everything changes. Verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He tells him, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You belong here. You belong to me. This is now your seat. This is your table forever. Church, God calls us in and He says, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Your enemies have been defeated. Death has lost its sting. The death of death was the death of Jesus. That when I speak, life comes. That when I speak, storms cease. That when I touch People are healed and restored and made right. And you belong to me. In my hand you are secure and nothing will separate you. We think of Romans 8 that says, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, right? Not, not life, nor death. Not angels, not prin- nor principalities. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That we have a place where we belong and we love and we do not have to be afraid anymore because the one who holds the universe together has called us His and has given us a seat at the table. I want you to listen to a passage that we reference often, but listen to it in light of Mehebesheth here in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, right, no merit, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast and sure love for David. That we are being, as Mehebesheth, we are being invited to the table with no food, or sorry, with no money and with no merit 
and no way to make it right, no way to make it right, and we're just being told, come and feast, it's yours. The work has been done, the merit is Jesus's, and you're in. Sit, eat. Right? We can imagine walking into someone's home right at dinner time and going, oh, this is awkward, right? Like, I, I need to leave. And they say, no, 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 sit down and eat. Sit down and eat. And you're going to do everything in your power to leave, right? Because you're thinking, they're only inviting me because they have to. Jesus says, no, this is your seat forever. Come and sit and eat with the king. Listen to Revelation uh, chapter 22. This is verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. We've been being told this throughout Scripture. That when, from when we were created and put in the garden with God to know and to love and to enjoy Him and to walk with Him. From Isaiah 55 to the end of Revelation, we are being told, Come, not by your religious ability, not by your merit, not by your ability not to do the big public sins, but by the grace and life and death and mercy and resurrection of Jesus, you are brought in to feast with the King for all time. Because we're no longer an enemy. Behebosheth walked in believing he was still the enemy, right, of David because of his grandfather, and he is now called a son. We were once the enemies of God, all of us. We are now called sons and daughters because of Jesus. Listen, in chapter 9, we see the kindness of a king to, a, to an enemy who's now a son. In chapter 10, we see the same kindness of a king being offered to another nation. And they scorn it and reject it and send back the emissaries, right? With beards ripped off in nakedness, with judgment. And what is the response then of the king? Judgment. You did not receive. You did not take the invitation. Defeat is coming. Defeat is coming. Church, we have to know that there's an invitation being made to all of us this morning to come and eat at the table with the king. None of you are without. The offer is for all. But there will be a day where the Lord will return. And those who have chosen not to eat at the table, for those who are not walking with the Lord, who have not received this free gift that's being offered, is judgment. We see it in Luke 14 as we think about uh, the parable of the wedding feast. So hear this, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But Second Peter continues with saying, but there will be a day, right, where He will return. And at that point, you will recognize Him as King and you will bow down, some willingly, gladly, and some in fear of judgment of a King that you have rejected as you have kept yourself King on your own throne of your own heart. So we see ourselves here as Mahabashah. But the beautiful passage part of this as well is that because there's layers to this, we also get to be King David. 
right? Because David received unmerited grace in chapter 7 with a covenant with God and his lineage being passed on for all time, culminating in Jesus, right? We, are, we receive unmerited grace from God and then we walk in obedience. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We walk in obedience to what God has done. We don't walk in obedience to get his attention. And so David shows unmerited grace to Mehebesheth after he had received unmerited grace from God. He's reflecting the kindness and the generosity and the intentionality of God to others. Church, this is our call as well. That we would show unmerited grace to those who don't deserve it. Not because we're superior. Not because we're better but because we have received it as a, need, like as a dead dog. We received it as one who was going to die in our sins before the Lord until He rescued us. And so our call is to be on mission and to pull people in and to point them to Jesus and say, come and eat at the table for free because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we are hospitable. And and for many of us, what it's going to look like is meals at our table. That you're bringing people into meals at your table, showing unmerited grace and generosity because you have received it. And the Lord is going to work and stir and move, and they're going to hear the invitation to come from Jesus. And they're going to hear and they're going to respond. We are called to reflect and to image our God's kindness both to those who are easy to love and those who aren't, both to those we want to and those who are uncomfortable. We don't get to show partiality. We can flesh that out in gospel community more this week as we we talk about what that can look like in practicality. But this morning, there's a call to respond. The king is saying, come. Come and eat to trust Him, to follow Him, to know Him, to receive Him, to be at the table, to belong. Mehebesheth didn't say, King, thank you so much for that. I'm glad to know that. And then head back to his home. He stayed with the King. Would we not be a people who say, Jesus, thank you. We're aware of your sacrifice. We're we're aware of your offer of salvation. We'll see you later. That we would come and sit with the King. Not leave the King. Be with the king because we didn't belong there and now we do. We were once an enemy and now we're family. And so if you don't know Jesus this way, He's calling. Would you respond to Him this morning? And then secondly, we're going to eat at the table this morning. We have the Lord's Supper set up for us. There's three. There's one here and there's two in the back. We'll replenish it as quick as we can. Um, But the table... The reason we have a table to look forward to in eternity is because Jesus' body was crushed for ours. We don't get what we deserve. And His blood was spilt so that ours wouldn't be. And so we take the bread and we take the juice and we remember a sacrifice and a death that isn't ours because it's what has brought us into right relationship with God the Father. It's why we belong at the table. It's because of Jesus. And so listen, the table is for believers. Um, and, it, it, and so, listen, if you have unconfessed um, un, um, sin this morning, right, spend some time confessing sin. If you have a broken relationship with someone, like, let's, let's work on restoring those relationships. But as we take that, we are remembering 
that Jesus has paid the sacrifice so that we belong at the table for all time. That we would take it, remembering that we are Mehebesheth, spiritually crippled before the Lord, and yet brought in as sons and daughters of the King to stay for all time. And so I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come back up. You are free at any point during the songs to, to move towards the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper um, as an individual, as a family, with friends. There'll be some men and the women in the back. Um, you need someone to talk to, to pray with. If you're questioning are you, if you're hearing the Lord's calling, you just need someone to pray over you this morning. Um, listen, I know it'll be a little bit crowded. Um, so if you need to sit, sit. If you need to stand, stand. But let's respond and worship our King this morning who has invited us to the table. Jesus, thank you that we can find such gifts in a book that's 3,000 years old. Right? In a story that's, on one hand, we are so far removed from, and yet, on the other hand, that we see ourselves in. So, Lord, this morning, would we celebrate the free, unmerited grace that you've given us, and would we not take it for granted? Would we not run from the table after it's been offered, but to sit with our King, who is rescued and is transforming and is changing us from one degree of glory to the next? And God, then would we go and show unmerited grace and generosity and kindness and mission and hospitality to a world that is in desperate need of hope. Lord, we want to be your people, reflecting your image, your glory, your kindness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.